0: Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. The beautiful day outside reminds us of the, the beautiful things you give us in life, the grace from your Son. And we thank you for this opportunity to discuss the history that you've overseen. Be with us and give us, uh, prepare us to worship you in the coming hour. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Woohoo, Young people! So last week we ended in the uh, ecumenical, ecumenical council of Chalcedon, where we had pretty much finally begun the walk of orthodoxy in respect to the the uh, how Christ had two natures in one. The, and so, kind of at the beginning of of last week, we spoke a little bit of Antony, and he was a monastic, or the, one of the first monks, and he was in the, uh, Europe, uh, the Egyptian area, around Alexandria. And why I wanted to start with him was, I thought it was very interesting whenever I was trying to see how did the, the message spread. We know that the Roman roads were there. We knew that, that people basically made use of this gift from the Roman Empire to move about the empire. But how did the word spread beyond persecution? And even beyond his persecution, it was the monastic movement, those monk folk. And one of the areas I thought it'd be interesting to look at is a far region in Scotland. And so we're Presbyterians, so we like Scotland. And uh, I think it's fun to see how it got there. And if you look and follow this, uh, kind of even in the map that we we handed out, that is going to be discussed later, the map of the Caliphate. You'll see at the very top right uh, right portion of the, uh, the British Isles there is an area to the left of the North Sea that's labeled the Picts. And the Picts were a people group that the Romans named them that. They didn't call themselves that, but they were the Painted Tribe that sometimes we might have seen in the movie Braveheart. Perhaps a little bit out of time there, but nevertheless, that was that people group up there that was beyond Hadrian's Wall and basically beyond the reach of the normal Roman influence. So, whenever you look at that area in Scotland, it's amazing that it had four warring tribes in it. And those warring tribes were the Picts that I had mentioned. And we've heard of the Angles, and those were typically the Germanic tribes that had kind of come in from the... uh, from the right there in the the western area. Are they coming from the the west towards the east? And so we we also have this group of the Britons. And then we finally get the group of, the last group is the Scots. And the Scots were pretty much an Irish tribe that had kind of come across. And you have these four warring bands there. But what was interesting to me as well was that there weren't roads there. So we have an area that's roughly, you know, a, it's, it's by no means as big as Texas, but it's as big as North Texas easily. And we, we have people moving in in the 400s that were essentially monks that didn't have a guidebook yet. And so two of those monks were Ninian and Columba. And those two fellows were essentially... Uh, Irish that, that came there, typically in the case of Ninian, he basically came across and and brought some folk with him and built one of the first stone churches in that area. And it's still, there's still elements of it today. The, the walls are still standing. And so uh, if I ever get over there, I think I might like to go see that, just to see that something that had been around since the 400s. And so... Um, they call it Candida Casa, which is kind of the White House, which it was a white stone building. And so what was interesting about him is that he kind of came alone, but he would start gathering people, whether it was from the Picts themselves or other people from Ireland that would find him. And they created these cells of people, just usually up to 10 or 12. And then once they got to that, that size, they would split, and he would form another group until it got to be 10 or 12, and then it would split. And so these cells of of usually less than 10 people would, would become little monasteries. And these little monasteries would frequently be teaching people how to read. They would frequently have no ability to read. And so he was not only an educator, but a a carrier of the gospel and uh, it's hard to imagine at this point there's not a, a canonized Bible there's not a, a collection even of lots of leaflets oftentimes it was like a copy of a letter that was that monk's copy and then he would teach the next one and it just proliferated And eventually there were groups of people that were almost like little Bible factories. I've got a copy of the letter of John. I've made a copy. You can have a copy if you'll give me your copy of the Roman letters. And they began collecting them in that manner. Another important thing is they came up with vellum. Have Have you guys ever worked with parchment or vellum or papyrus? There's a very different feel in the different types of paper. And vellum was made of calfskin and was very durable. And uh, in fact, one of the more expensive books today is, uh, is a book that was essentially a, a letter of John. It was found in Cuthbert, Cuthbert's <clears throat> coat pocket in his coffin. They moved him once and they looked inside and lo and behold, there's a copy of the letter of John in there. And it was from the, you know, the 10, 1095 time frame. And it had survived all that time, and I think it sold for fourteen million at auction fairly recently, but uh, so someone i can't imagine uh opening it and using it, but all the pages are online. If you ever look up cuthbert's uh, book you can you can see the individual pages online but so anyway they have this they have these communities that that are springing up in Scotland, and in these communities they're in the midst of of literally tribes that are completely pagan and they literally drive out the paganism. The Druids disappear and are replaced by monks. The northern area that the Romans couldn't conquer was conquered essentially by initially a a group of four to six monks that, that eventually brought Christianity to that area. Now granted it is not the Christianity that we are familiar with today because there was not a canonized book of the Bible, but the essentials were there, and it's partly why it's so important today that we do have these views that are more orthodox, because back then, the gospel was a fairly straightforward this man Christ died for your sins, but you know, a lot of people didn't really know, well, what what are my sins? What was that? So new ideas came and gone, but...
1: That was their, they that's were that, doing for penance. I thought when you started off that they were coming for political purposes and and just happened to spread the gospel there. No, so they, this is straight string missions.
0: Yeah, that's what that's what's so interesting to me. In my mind and in your mind, what do you think of when you think of a monk? You, you think of you think of the ascetic monks, yeah. the ones like uh, Antony that went off into the wilderness. Well, he went out in the wilderness, and people were like, going, "What is that guy doing?" And they came out there to check. And before he knew it, he had like 125 people around him, and he's like, "I've got to go off again,"
1: <laughs>
0: and so he would go off again. And these these monks, there was a monk that literally lived on a pillar, which is a very odd story. But in by uh, Constantinople, that area of the region, actually, I guess it was more exterior, it's more like Syria, a little further south. But he built for himself a pillar because he felt that he wanted to be separated, but closer to God, and so whenever they came up with this Chalcedonian Creed, they ran it by him and he was like that's true, that's the truth and so those fellows albeit a little unusual also played an important role as being a a, a,
1: well, we a checkpoint week, for them. There, there really wasn't a lot of filter or boundaries or overseeing mm-hmm. these
0: guys kind of worked. yeah And so the other fellow that I would mention was Columba. And he was from Donegal, Ireland. And he had already formed uh, monasteries in Ireland. But in the middle of his life, he felt like he hadn't done enough. And as an act of contrition, he basically said, I'm going to Scotland. And so he joined Ninian. And the name Ninian, we got that name from Bede. He was a ninth century historian. And this fellow basically was one of the first fellows to record the name. And it's been accepted by both the Eastern and Western churches as a fellow. But in today's world, we constantly have to look at things. And go, well, perhaps this was actually a fellow named Mungo. That was his, not his pre-Christian name. So, in any case, I, I'm going to stick with Ninian because, well, there's a Saint Ninian. And I'm not Catholic, but it's convenient for history. So... So, uh, again, these, these groups, I just wanted to kind of, if you just think of it, can you imagine walking from here to Austin, and then from Austin walking over to San Antonio, then from San Antonio walking back up to Texas? All the while, there's, there's not a road, and there's not a, it, it's just amazing to me. And so, I'd like to point out that difference in the way I looked at monks, from the way we think of them as being cloistered in a, a, a building that's only set apart. And the way they got to that second one was from Benedict's Rule. And um, if you've, have you ever heard of Benedict's Rule? Got a nod from John, that's good. So uh, Pope John Paul II reissued Benedict's Rule in 1980. Some of you might have been exposed to it then. I bought a copy of it off of Amazon for $3. And um, it's really a very interesting book. And if you look at it, it has all the makings of what you would need to put together a monastery. What you would need to select the abbot. How the person should, should live their life. And if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, it's very similar. in how he went about uh, the two. Some of the things are that the, the love of Christ must be above all else. You are not to act in anger or nurse a grudge. Rid your heart of all deceit. There's like 75 of these things. And there's like 75 chapters. But a chapter is like three paragraphs. So it's fairly short. But in any case, this book or rule, because it was, they called it a rule, is what started the whole consistency of monastic life. It told them when to get up. It told them how frequently to pray. It told them how frequently they should uh, uh, decide how to read the Psalms. What I thought was very interesting in it was if you didn't like the way the Psalms were being read and the, the order in which they were being read, the answer was to write down the order you thought would be better and then submit that to the abbot. And then upon the next opportunity, he would use your version until someone else came up with one. And so I thought, well, that was actually pretty logical, really, when you think about it. So, in any case, these rules were very important in the fact that they essentially became a guideline that helped standardize a lot of the approach. It helped standardize the, the copying of, the, of the, the works of letters. It helped in the creation of a diet that, helped, that kept the monks... It's really healthy, it produced interesting things like ale, and, and these are all inventions that we take for granted today that were largely pushed out by having this standard that they would get to a point and say, okay, it's time to go start somewhere else again. And so the, uh, this particular Benedictine is the, is the Order of Benedict, that Benedictine monk is going to play a role later in our discussion. So, um, I guess when we, when we look at this, I like to think that, I didn't realize it, but for the most part, those monks had fairly well sustained what was noble and most Christ-like across over a thousand years easily, just with their efforts trying to be more Christ-like. And so, that kind of brings us up into, we'll say, the 500s. And we'll talk about a fellow named Gregory. Gregory. Gregory was one of the uh, wealthy young fellows in Italy that his dad was a senator. And he was actually pretty gifted in the law. And so in his uh, kind of early middle age, he was appointed the prefect for Rome. And Gregory, he was very good at organizing. He was an organizing machine. And essentially, once he got into the job, he realized that he didn't actually like that job. He would rather be a monk. And so he renounced his work, sold a very sizable estate and his fortune to uh, provide for the, the needy. And uh, eventually rose through the ranks of this church hierarchy to be elected as the Pope. And so he goes from being a prefect to a Pope in a, a matter of years. And he is one of the first fellows that uh, furthered this idea that the Pope was the vicar of Christ, that he was Christ's representative on earth, and that he should take forth and conquer the world for him. And so one of the interesting things about the way he was doing this was he was sending out people to the rulers of the kingdoms at that time and essentially saying, you know, you should be, one of us. And he would stay in the courts and until such a time as frequently, they would become Christians and then they would fall under this, the influence of this Roman Pope. Now if you remember last week we were all in Constantinople it was an area that was by no means uh, backwater, it's the center of the Roman Empire but here we have in Rome now, this one lone bishop who is saying, no, no, I'm the fellow that you should all be following. I'm the guy that Peter from that line, this should be the spot. And the other four sees did not uh, appreciate it very much. But at this point, they're not truly, uh, they're not truly angry at each other enough to be splitting. But other things that Gregory brought to it was he developed the need for purification after death. So his views are pretty much the seed of purgatory. So that errancy that we we know is a difference between our beliefs and the, the Catholic beliefs really started with Gregory. He also brought forward the idea that there was the ability to do something hard or something difficult to Pay for a sin that you had committed, so penance was one of his ideas. It was kind of loosely assumed that if you did something hard, that it was good for you, and that it would be in some way compensatory for something bad you'd done. That was part of the reason these fellows went to Scotland but this Gregory is one of the ones that kind of codified it and said okay there's a there's a a measurement here we can do something with and the other thing that he brought to the table that I was kind of surprised at was that he was one of the first uh, popes to call the sacrifice in mass that it was Christ that was the victim of that sacrifice that he was being re-sacrificed each time and so that was an area and so again he's, he's in that 540 to 604 so they didn't live that long some of them back then but a contemporary of his was a fellow named Muhammad. Now Muhammad was born... Yes, please.
1: Before we move on from Gregory, he's also the writer of Hymn 174. O Christ, our King, Creator, Lord. Good deal. Gregory the Great, under the name of Gregory the Great. We'll be seeing with the same... Right. Good
0: deal. I mean... <coughs> Not
1: to, to take away from the hymn.
0: One of the things that, again, we have to be, at this point... There was no reform yet. These are our brothers. They had views that weren't necessarily correct, but they're still our brothers in Christ. And so... Well,
1: and nothing told them it was incorrect.
0: That's, that's largely true. Well, if you look at wrong the... if
1: no one's ever said, hey, this isn't right.
0: In Gregory's case, I would say there was little political machinations that he was pretty good at. That, yes? Um,
1: have, you, have you read Cahill's book, How the Irish State Civilization?
0: No,
1: I'm not. It discusses that the the Irish church considered itself in the line of John, not Peter. Mm -hmm. Um, The monasteries of Ireland, um, first of all, the priesthood of the Irish church was not celibate. Um, The Irish didn't just take Christianity to parts of Scotland that the Romans had never reached, but actually because of the influx of barbarians uh, from the Germanic tribes, re-Christianized and reintroduced language to much of northern and western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, at the point when Rome was at best an imperial backwater and at worst getting burned down on regular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's you know it's significant. and then the Irish Church subsequently to that, um, when when connection with Rome is eventually re-established, submits itself to the Sea of Peter is yeah. susceptible to that argument that on this rock I would build my church and this is the seat of Peter yeah. but that it operated essentially independently for centuries.
0: Well that would also play right into the, the fact that the book of John was the one that was one of the most popular books that was copied in that area. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and as you mentioned Western Byzantine Empire or Roman Empire was regularly being raided by the, the Germanic tribes. And to the so, point
1: where written, the ability to read and write had become so rare, the word glamour, which essentially means magic in English, is derived from the Latin grammar. The, the ability to read and write had become so rare that it was treated as a word. Something yeah. specially magical.
0: <laughs> well, and, and this is one of the beautiful things about uh, discovery of history is what you know allows you to step differently around things. And so the old saying of, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it is very true. And so uh, I guess my uh, my other issue was, is I stayed in Scotland and Ireland for probably a good two days, and yesterday another four hours before I said, no, we'll never get into the 800s if we don't move on.
1: <laughs> so...
0: I, I we're not going to delve as much into the the Roman side of, the, of it with Gregory as, as we could, because I'm, I'm appreciative that You brought up his hymn. There's an awful lot of hymns that were from this time period that we still sing. But uh, the map that you've been handed is, is a map of the Caliphate. And if you were to look at the previous map of the Roman Empire, you would see that it's actually greater than the Roman Empire. And so, Muhammad was an orphan that was essentially illiterate and was, oh, let's say at the age of 25 or so, he decided to marry an older lady that had some money and became her businessman, a tradesman. And in the extent of this action, he was exposed to a lot of Jewish people and even Christians where he was exposed to the, the gospel. That particular understanding was uh, greater than I think many people realize but also wholly inadequate for understanding the message but if you look at the Quran there's an awful lot of what he had heard and what he had understood from what he had learned the, from the Christians and the Jews in it. You know it, it talks of Jesus being a prophet Mary being a, the mother of the prophet and there's a lot of stuff that's uh, that we could go through there, but in any event, he had six children, and one of which uh, survived to adulthood, his daughter Fatima. And in the middle age of middle time of his life, he basically claimed to have had an ex- a supernatural vision, and he said that the archangel Gabriel, and he used again a name that he had heard from the other side there, uh, called him to be a prophet of God. And he basically began to preach about the five pillars of Islam. And these different pillars were the uh, shihada, the confession that there is no God but Allah, and that he was his prophet, salat, the duty and ritual of prayer five times a day, zakat, the necessity of engaging in acts of charity, Sawm, the fasting during the month of Ramadan, and the hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca and I apologize for the pronunciation of those, they're, they're probably incorrect, but the basic thing that I wanted to get across is that he basically had these five tenants, and very few people listened to him at that very particular moment. So when, he, when he's at 52, he flees to Medina, and at this time in his life, he has started to gather other people groups, and, and he finally does gather enough people that a couple years later, he returns to Mecca with an army of 10,000 and is largely met with almost no resistance. He, reca- he captures the city that had tossed him and made him flee before and uh, begins, really, his teachings. And I don't think it's coincidental that he tries to get all this done in three years. And so he passes away at 62, and we we see basically his work carried on by another. And the things that I think are striking to me is that he passes away at at basically uh, 632. Five years later, Jerusalem is sacked by Muslim forces. So if you look at this map, you have Arabia, which was the seat of his uh, original conquest before his death, and then the next section there, the lighter orange, is what happens relatively quickly. And you'll note that the Ottoman Empire is at the very center of your map. That's, uh, that is an area that was largely contested but remained outside of their control. So, at 688, about 50 years later, he actually takes forces to Constantinople, and he puts the city at siege. And for me, this is another area where I got really very interested because of the fact that this is where we first hear about from this side of the world of Greek fire. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with it, this is a substance that was portable, it was throwable, and it did not go out whenever you put water on it. And so for an invading force that was partly ship's on water, that was really bad news because it meant the the ships burned and sank relatively quickly and uh, they were repelled. And so in 688, that first bout is done. All the ships are are burned and they try again in 717. So not quite a 100 years later, the second siege begins. Well, the first one, they brought a few fellows with them The second siege of Constantinople had over 220,000 Muslims and over 1,800 galleys. And a galley was a fairly decent sized ship. We're not talking about rowboats that are three guys. We're talking about those large hundred person galleys. And so 1,800 of those meant that a large force of this was was on water. And if you look at the area of Constantinople, you'll see that we have the Black Sea and then the Aegean Sea on both sides of it so that again though they were repelled by Greek fire and uh, at the point of the of the end of it all they essentially uh, stalled at the city walls and eventually had to go home because of the lack of food so they were repelled as well by the Byzantine people fighting and the Byzantines called their friends the Turks so, hey, why don't you come and hit them on this side and we'll we'll be uh appreciative of that. And uh and so these these things are what led the the repel of them of the Muslims at that time. So uh if you look at this map as well, I'm I'm just mystified by the fact that we have them going all the way to the very top of Spain and it's like, how did they get there so quickly? By 741, the Muslim forces in Spain had advanced all the way to Tours, France. And if you're familiar with the French uh, topography at all, that's, that's south of Paris, and it's on its way to the heart of France. So it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a beautiful area, but it's a very interesting that they basically were repelled. And they were repelled by this fellow that went by the moniker of Charles the Hammer. Sounds like a Texas lawyer, but uh, <laughs> Charles the Hammer basically struck and was able to stop the advancement of the Muslim forces. And that particular fellow was the grandfather to Charlemagne. And so we'll uh, we'll take a, a quick side trip uh, on your handout so we have to... See where we're at here. I st- I, in mine, it's, it, it's, a, it's the flat iconic controversy, the story of Latin and Greek. Uh, but we'll be picking up with Charlemagne as well in a second. I may have, maybe slightly time-wise, this is correct. So in that 800 time frame just before then, we see the two seas areas, the four on the eastern side in Rome, having trouble with the fact that there are two different languages, both Latin and Greek. And we today continue to struggle with this in a large part, whether or not you were uh, working from a a Latin Vulgate translation or or which one. You know, we're very still concerned with these languages. Well, for them, it was a large source of contention. There was also a challenge that had begun springing up in the 500s of iconography where people couldn't read and they were taking flat boards and painting pictures on them and, uh, and using that as illustrations. Well, these illustrations, unfortunately, began to be venerated in some cases. And that became very problematic for the Western uh, region. They said, well, that's Those are idols. You shouldn't be doing that. But the the eastern side was, no, no, these are flat. The second commandment says about graven images. These are flat. They're not idols. And so uh, that was very interesting to me. That they had come up with that distinction, and it's still that way. If you go look at a lot of the Greek Orthodox... Churches in the area, they'll have flat images, but they won't have any statuary. And so, and the word icon was from Greek, and it was for image. And uh, for a large part, they also made a little bit of money. So the monks in that side of the world would basically find a piece of wood, flatten it, you know, and then paint with oil this image of whether it was Christ or at that time, they, uh, the veneration of Mary had sprung up. If you remember from the Ephesian Council, how they were very, they were very fond of Mary. So Mary had begun to be venerated, and uh, they would they would typically make pictures of saints that they had, you know, the apostles. And again, for a people that can't read, I really do, I really do struggle with how do you help people that can't read understand what you're talking about. We do it all the time with, with maps and with things today. And so I think I'm a little sympathetic to the idea of illustrations for that purpose. But um, so in any event, we, we have this tension that's beginning between the four seats, the Alexandria, the Antioch, Constantinople, and Jerusalem saying, no, this is okay. And Rome saying, wait, no, this is Violation of the Second Commandment. We can't do this. Sir, can yeah, please.
1: So, uh, back. I guess we're talking about the time of Gregory and, and some of the earlier popes. And so on. they were defending the, the the idea that we aren't making graven images, and they accused the yes Eastern Church of idolatry. Of idolatry. And now, so, so at what point is the Catholic Church?
0: Flip yeah. the switch.
1: Yes. When did they decide the statues are great? Basically,
0: it's going to happen in the first in the Crusades. Oh, okay. We're going to see. Uh, <laughs> basically, they have to fund these large armies, and uh, and it is some errancy in their in their their papal walk here in a, about 400 years, where they essentially say, you know, uh, it's not just the images. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't make idols. But well, it's okay if you have a of a statue of Christ or a statue of Mary or you happen to have a few bones laying about. <laughs> and, uh, and so they really went very very big on bones. And so uh, they would build very ornate boxes to contain the bones of past saints. And um, again, Cuthbert and his coat with a book in it was largely found because of their veneration and wanting to get those they find the book on him. So, but that you you went right to the uh, the most unusual part of all this was you have Gregory and his guys going, hey, wait, this is this isn't right. Same guy though that's saying let's do some penance and some other wrong things. But uh, again, at this point of time, we're still trying to get things right, and so uh, we we see that, that becoming a big a big uh, contention.
1: Mm-hmm. we're kind of hedging things in until we've got it just
0: right. And, and it's important to think of how they thought of things. You know, we, we, we see the university system spring up eventually at the end of the day. We'll talk a little bit about that, barring uh, time. But uh, so we, we see the, the West saying you can't bow down. If you bow down, it's wrong. That was their main contention. Was that it wasn't just the fact that you'd drawn something. It was more that you were venerating it. And in that regard, I think they were correct. And so uh, we had the, a fellow named John of Damascus, which he was in that 650 to 750. He died in 750. But he wrote one of the larger rebuttals to the West and uh, basically pointed to baptism and to the Lord's Supper as being verbal icons. That we have two pictures given to us by the Lord in, in living flesh every time we partake of it, that are icons, so why shouldn't we have these flat versions? And so, so, uh, it, his his wording is, is much more detailed than that, but a synod was called again, and we have uh, Constantine V, so five Constantines later, in 753, that basically said we should destroy all icons. So, Icons are bad, and that that lasts for all of about thirty years, and then and another person is in charge in seven eighty seven, and they reverse it and says that not that those icons are okay, and that largely is the first uh, part of the schism. We really see the seeds have taken root now. East and west are essentially saying the other are doing things without the agreement of the other side. And up until now, I thought it was remarkable. If you could imagine getting all these people together and everyone agreeing on something, that time, that ship has somewhat sailed, unfortunately. And so, the, uh, we basically see that the worship at the time of just before this was very simple. They got together, they read the Psalms, they sang the Psalms, they, they listened to a letter being read that was a work from the Bible. There wasn't a lot of expository preaching yet at this time. It was mainly just literally them reading whatever letter they had a copy of. I've got John, let's do this. And so uh, with the advent of iconography and the gilding of these images, the robes became more elaborate, they started using incense in the East to help stimulate the uh, the mood. You had incense being offered as as a an, a an element that was, if you look at it, where did they get that from? Well, we used to burn incense to Caesar. Now we're burning incense to our icons. So again, that didn't fly well with the West, but yet later on they pretty much said, well, those other guys really liked it. You got the people to come in the doors, and so we should do the same.
1: Is that what's in that whole thing? they
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. When you when you see them come in the procession, that's in there. So uh, we're up to eight hundred now, and uh, this is where truly the papacy reaches its ascendancy. A couple of uh, a couple of years before, Stephen II was the Second was pope, and he traveled to Paris and crowned. Uh, Pepin the Short as King of the Franks. Or no, I'm sorry, no. Not the. Is that right? Yeah. So he, so he, he basically did crown him King of the Franks. We have, we have a pope traveling to do something nice for a king. In 800, on Christmas Day, Charlemagne, uh, Charles, is basically in Rome and Pope Leo III crowns him Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and essentially creates this new empire again that combines the church and the state again, much like it did before. And, uh, man, I don't want that to be the the bell right now. But, uh, so, I guess, sadly, we're not going to get to the... I don't know how fast I could go through all that. So, we'll talk a little bit about Charlemagne and Vladimir. The two of them, uh, I think, are interesting in the fact that Charlemagne epitomized the, the new king that was part of the Roman Empire. The church had influence over it. Charles didn't think the pope was his boss, but it's interesting that a pope crowned him. And so whenever you think about who does something to someone else, it's usually the person above doing to the person below. It's not usually the reverse. And so Pope Leo was pretty smart in the fact that he did that. But Charles himself felt like he had a, he was a Christian. He felt like he had a duty from God to propagate the word. And so that was interesting to me as well. He was in the midst of a long, I mean, long, 22 expeditions against the Germans, the Saxons. They, they had been coming in from Germany into France, and he had been repelling him. Well, he had, his dad, or grandfather, had repelled the Muslims to the south. So they were, they were a pretty busy bunch back then. And, um, and so the thing I thought Pope, uh, Pope Leo was trying to do was he was trying to basically replace the lack of continuity of empire that we had had from the true Roman Empire with a new one. And the Eastern Empire, at this time, the Byzantine Empire, is like, that place is a mess. We're, we're happy if we get someone in charge over there. So if you're calling yourself Roman, we're good. And actually gave them their blessing. And so we have this ascendancy of this Holy Roman Empire. And it lasts as the Holy Roman Empire until the, until the Napoleonic Wars, when Napoleon basically abolishes it in 1800, so 1806. But uh, to me, that was remarkable. That we have this backwater uh, bishop who basically works because Jerusalem was originally the the seat; it was the center of it. And then the empire made Christianity legal. Constantinople became the big the big arbitrator when everyone was arguing for their favor. Rome basically said, "You know, we can be that guy that can be the other voice if you're if you need another." voice for your argument and through political maneuverings they essentially became this we're the the true path and that'll play into the schism when we talk about it soon but uh, so where's the other side why do I not know anything about the other side I don't know anything about the other side because I'm from the west eastern orthodoxy we don't have a whole lot of information on if you haven't looked for it because of our background. Well, Vladimir, Prince Vladimir, was a, a grandson of Olga. And Olga was a, a matriarch that... Uh, they say that the Game of Thrones character was largely uh, fashioned after her. Because she was pretty cutthroat. And, uh, and so I, I'm assuming that was a good thing. But nevertheless. He was succeeding the crowd in Kivian Ross... And this Russ area, to me, is foreign. And I guess we'll talk about him more soon. But it stretched all the way from the Caspian Sea down here, or the, or, and the Black Sea, rather, by the Byzantine Empire, all the way up to the, the Nordic countries. So that entire area was underneath his control, ultimately. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about him, I guess, next week. But uh, he was essentially Charlemagne for the other side. He was a, an invader that came down, and the byzantine empire said you 're successful with a with a gun let 's go ahead and, and see if we can 't work something out here 's my daughter marry her. he becomes a Christian to become the uh, to get that wedding and uh, the, the rest is history as far as he took all of Kiev down to the river and baptized the entire city and so no I don't think this is Vlad the Impaler if it it is Vlad the Impaler we'll have to look at that I think that Vlad was somewhere else this Vladimir is the good guy that they uh, basically if you look at Vladimir Putin this is probably who he was named after so uh, I mean if you if right now there's a big thing right now about Vladimir being the new Vladimir so yeah and so this is I I I don't know about the Vlad the Impaler I didn't look up anything on it so, anyway, I, I, next week we'll, we'll pick up with a recap on Charlemagne and Vladimir and we'll talk about the Great Schism and lots of crusades because, well, we've got, we've got killing to do there. And, uh, and really, the, the, the end of the day was to get back to the monasteries. We have Anselm in, uh, of, of Canterbury, Peter Lombard, Bernard of Claveau, And some other guys that really did help straighten out some things. So, uh, if you'll pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. And we ask you to prepare our hearts and minds to worship you appropriately in the coming Mm -hmm. hour. We pray for us to be uh, aware and uh, ready to to take opportunities to glorify you in our daily lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.